Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org. Hello and welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, my name is Errol Yabuke. I'm a senior fellow and uh, deputy director of the Project on Prosperity and Development. It's really an honor to be here today with um, someone who I've known about for a long time uh, and have just recently come to know and, and really appreciate your place in history uh, and, and someone who has taken the time to really document a really consequential time, not just in refugee and migration response history, but in, I would argue, world history. So if you haven't had a chance to buy uh, Jim's book outside, you will have a chance to do so after this. And I would, as someone who has recently finished it, um, I highly recommend it. And, and the reason that I recommend it um, is not just because Jim founded the Refugee Programs Bureau at State, it's not just because uh, he was the Director General of the International Organi uh, Organization for Migration, who um, is helping uh, co-host this event with CSIS today. It's that Jim had a front row seat to history, and he, he documented that exceedingly well and in a lot of, of detail. So if you are a nerd like me, <laughs> this is an excellent read. Uh, and if you're really interested in not only big ideas and really coming away with, with a sense of, of purpose, which you will get when you read this, but really understanding how kind of difficult and honestly bureaucratic some of these challenges can be, I, I think for people like me, and I would argue looking out knowing some of you, people like you, you'll appreciate just the difficulty that Jim faced throughout his time and, and how he was able to uh, come out on top and really do some really amazing things uh, during his career and, and, and his life. So um, you've done an incredible service by documenting all of this. Uh, you guys didn't come here to listen to me talk. Uh, you came here to, to celebrate Jim and to thank him for, for documenting all of this and, and writing this. So Jim, thank you for being here. Uh, just to kick it off, tell us, tell us a little bit about why you decided, I mean, this is a Herculean task. <laughs> Jim and I had coffee last Friday and I said, Jim, who was your ghostwriter? And he said, <laughs> this guy. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a Herculean task, and you, this is an incredibly well-researched, well-documented, well-attributed uh, piece of work. So what motivated that? And tell us a little bit about this title, We're in Danger, Who Will Help Us? Thank you, uh, Errol. And first, let me thank the Center for CRCS for hosting this event, and IOM uh, for supporting it and to all of you for coming today. Why I wrote this book, I had a unique opportunity, probably one of the greatest opportunities anybody in the State Department has ever had, to be there at the birthing of an organization that would help refugees around the world. And I worked with an incredible team, many of whom are here today. 
We worked during a period that I call in the book the refugee decade. And I'm going to try to explain what that is. Uh, I think it starts with about the time the Vietnam problem started in Southeast Asia. And that's 1979, 1989 was the signing of the comprehensive plan uh, for, for comprehensive action in Indochina. Between those two pieces, they're both Indochina, maybe 20 million people in Asia, in Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union, in Africa, the Middle East, South Asia, Central America. This team helped, supported, and defended. This was a special team. My friend, Jean Dewey, who's my debt, was my closest colleague, who's here with us tonight, used to say that they were Foreign Service Plus, Civil Service Plus. We didn't just stop with trying to manage the problem. We went out and looked for solutions, and we brought them back. We worked for two wonderful presidents, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, and they set the example for us. They were humanitarian heroes. And they told us, they gave us the leeway to do the job. And uh, make one other point, Errol. All that we did was grounded in human rights. I recall the meeting in 1948 where Eleanor Roosevelt sat down with governments in New York, and they came up with a Declaration of Human Rights. And it, she said, there is a basic right that every person has for dignity. And that we all agreed to. And as you recall, a number of institutions were created to give expression to that. And the, refugees with the greatest expression of that. Mm. So that's the team we had. And I, uh, later on, I, I spent 10 great years there and then went to IOM, then came back here, started to write this book and I looked around and I was trying to see how has the world changed when I was there, when refugee programs were, say, a mountaintop experience. Well, I came back and they were not, they were different. Refugees were being dishonored. Yeah. And so what I wanted to, to say in the, say in the part four of my book, which deals with Syria, is we've got a problem, folks. There was a model set for you earlier. Let's get back to what works. And uh, what I, the title for the book. I read many, many books, reports, articles over this time. Many of them stuck out, but two particularly. Many of you know Mort Abramowitz. Mort wrote an uh, article back in uh, about 1913, I mean 2013, <laughs> 2013. I don't know if Mort's here, but sorry, Mort. <laughs> and he called it unattended misery. And he, was try and he was speaking of Syria, trying to show what hasn't been happening. 
and Mort documented it quite well. And another one was Valerie Amos, who was the UN's Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs. She wrote an article a little bit after Mort, which she said, does anybody care about Syria? Uh, so when I was reading those, I said, you know, they've got a point. We've got to put, we've put up, got to put ourselves in the position of refugees. We've got to wear their shoes for a while. We've got to know what they do, uh, in addition to what we do as policymakers. So I came up with, we're in danger, who will help us? And then I said, but we've got to put this at a higher level. We've got to challenge people. I said, refugees and migrants, a test of civilization. Now, one might ask, uh, who would you go to to respond to that title? We're in danger. Who will you help us? Who will help us? Back in the refugee decade, I think it was very clear who you would go to. Today, I'm not so sure anymore. Um, I want to ask about some of those figures in history that you walk us through in the book. Um, but inquiring minds want to know first, what is the missile on the back? <laughs> Can you just tell that story briefly? Because actually somebody asked me this before and I was like, that wasn't on my list of questions. Uh, but that's a great question. Well, that picture occurs in Chechnya. I've heard of it. <laughs> Back when I got into IOM, uh, the Russians were trying to corral the Chechnyan separatists. They went to war and it was, it was dangerous. When I got to Grozny, I could stand in the center of the city. There's the parliament building out there. It's about 10 stories. It's all bombed out. I can stand in the center and turn in any direction. Every structure, every house is destroyed. Well, the Russians knew that while they were the aggressors, they had to pay some attention to the victims that they were creating. So they invited the Red Cross in to help, and they invited IOM in to help. Mm. Our job was to try to help these victims. I put a Danish army major in our, as chief of our mission there. Unbelievably, he was able to negotiate with the Russians and the Chechnyans a pause every day so that we could run our buses and cars and trucks in there and we could pick up people and we could get them out of there and up to this mountain. And they had a little facility up there. Well, when I was there, I wanted to walk around places that were still, and I saw this Russian missile in the ground. And people had been killed with this missile. And I said, well, I, I want to remember it. I want to put it in my mind, the kinds of people were, it, you'll be interested to know when I went up on this where they were being sheltered. Uh, there was no electricity, no running water. It was a six-story place, so you can imagine what the sanitary conditions were. But I interviewed a bunch of these folks, and I noticed that they all had these little marks on the back of their leg. So I asked someone, I said, well, what? What, what is that? And they said, well, that was the dogs 
The dogs. The dogs. The, when they would be attacked by the Russians and they didn't leave fast enough, they would sick the dogs on them. Well, you know, this is horrendous. So I went back to Moscow when I was going back home. I wanted to see Mr. Yeltsin and tell him I knew about this and I was going to blow the whistle on him. Well, he wouldn't see me, but I did see the deputy premier and I said, I've got it, it's documented, I got pictures of it. If this doesn't stop, you're going to see it in the newspapers all over the world tomorrow. And it did. They stopped for a while, but I think once I left, and probably a few weeks later, it started again. But it was an incredible time. Hmm. I lost staff there. The Red Cross eventually had to leave because of dangerous conditions. They lost six people. But Chechnya was a, a battleground. Yeah. It was not where I thought you were going with that. Uh, <laughs> that was a fascinating story. And, and uh, keeping with the fascinating stories, because I think, I think you came here today to be inspired like I was uh, reading this and, and am just listening to you, Jim, but um, also to listen to some of these stories. And I've had the privilege of sitting down with Jim a couple times now and hearing these stories. And it's such a privilege that I wanted to give an opportunity to share it with you guys. Um, Jim, can you tell us about Jimmy Carter? Um, you assert several times in the book that placing humanitarian, um, humanitarian victims centrally in foreign policy decision-making is really critical. Uh, you alluded to the fact that, that maybe that's something that we need to get back to and place more central in our foreign policy now. But tell us a little bit about um, I want to hear about Jimmy Carter. I'd love to hear about George Shultz, who wrote the, the foreword for your book, um, what you and Mr. Dewey did in the Horn of Africa, and then if we have time, maybe some, some conversation about the, the Persian Gulf. But, but tell us about uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, well, Jimmy Carter is one of my heroes. Indochina in the early days, uh, we had, we had uh, chaos. After the American troops pulled out, we evacuated about 150,000 people off the embassy, at the embassy in Saigon. Uh, we thought that pro the program then was ended. There were a couple of years of quiet, but what we didn't know is what the new communist governments were doing to the people in those countries, Cambodia, Vietnam, and Laos. Uh, but we began to see murmurings in late 1978 People started coming to Thailand, they went to Malaysia, they went to Indonesia, and they were building up. Well, those governments, we called them <coughs> safe first asylum governments, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, but the populations built up rapidly, and they began to say they won't take anymore. They were cutting out. At one point, the Thai pushed back 40,000 Cambodians back across the border at one point, into minefields, if you can believe it. That's how difficult it was becoming. But in mid-1979, we knew that it was coming to a head, and we knew that the Americans were going to have to step up and take some of the pressure off the asylum governments, or the whole thing was going to collapse. But the ASEAN governments announced to us, I think in early June, that there would be a moratorium June 30. No more people could cross their border. Oh. The Malaysians said no more people could land. The Indonesians, even the Philippines said no more. So we knew something had to happen. So we started planning on a big initiative. 
it would have to be resettlement. And uh, we had to pull together a decision package for Jimmy Carter. We had already been doing maybe 7,000 per month, but uh, we knew it had to be much more. Um, you might hear of a guy named Richard Holbrook. Heard he of him was before. the Assistant Secretary for East Asia and the Pacific at that point. Richard said, we gotta go big. We gotta do something that'll get their attention. I was just in from OMB and I had been sent up to the Refugee Bureau to set it up. And I knew they had no money. The Congress wasn't appropriating. The Bureau had violated something called the Anti-Deficiency Act. There were reports from the Congress uh, chastising their man management and threatening to move the program to another agency. So I, I had to represent the management and I told Dick Holbrook, uh, we can't do what you want to do. It's too much. Uh, the OMB people won't allow it, but he kept bugging. So uh, we had a big meeting up in the Ops Center and I eventually agreed, well, we'll go as high as 10,000 per month. Nobody's ever done that much before. Re receiving 10,000 10, people, people into per the US, month. Into the U.S. I said, That'd we'll nice. take that many into the U.S. every month. Well, we had to, of course, then put that in a memo and send it over to Carter. Brzezinski, Zygna Brzezinski was in the NSC guy and he guided the letter through. Um, we got it back and uh, there was no decision. And Carter announced he was gonna go to Tokyo for an economic summit and that he wanted to make some announcement on refugees while there, but he couldn't decide what to do. So they got on the plane, Air Force One, on the way to Tokyo, uh, to Tokyo, Holbrook was banging away at Carter the whole trip. <laughs> saying, this is what you've got to do. And he had grandiose ideas and I knew we couldn't go that far and I was saying, hold back here a little bit. Well, Carter took it all in, he wouldn't make a decision on the plane ride over. But the next day at the economic summit, Carter talked about a number of things. He said, and we're gonna take in 14,000 people per month. It's an incredible decision. I, I'm glad you were wrong. Well, I'm glad, but I, I look back on it and I say that was a presidential decision. Yep. He rose above all the bureaucrats and all the noise down there below, and he made the kind of a decision that a president had to make. Yep. Well, you know, that 14,000 a month, they got to Geneva. When Vice President Mondale, who headed up our delegation, gave the American speech in Geneva, the Palais, which many of you know, when he concluded, the audience broke into applause. Everybody stood and shouted except the Russians and the Vietnamese. <laughs> and uh, Mondale came back and Governor Bob Bray from Iowa was in our delegation. He ran and said, this has been my proudest moment as an American to see what we would do for these people. So the 14,000 a month made the program and it did what we thought. Other governments saw what we were doing and they stepped forward. Yeah. So we left Geneva with 
260,000 offers for resettlement. We left Geneva with $290 million. And that doesn't sound like much now, but back in those days, that was a lot of How money. many Bitcoin is that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end, the, the success, that established the Bureau. It showed that we were serious. We were the leading government. Others followed our lead. But I'd, I keep back to this day, Jimmy Carter knew what had to be done. He ignored me and everybody else. <laughs> and he made the right decision. I think that takes a lot of guts. I think it not only takes a lot of guts, it's, it's something that's really relevant for today. I think there's a lot of conversation, they use the term, the, the term burden sharing gets thrown around. I don't love it, I don't see people as burdens, but that's the term that, of art these days. And, and I think there's no better example of sharing the responsibility to protect people in danger than, than that example of U.S. leadership and, and U.S. presidential leadership. And I think that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a major takeaway from, from that story. Tell us about your friend, former Secretary of State George Schultz. Well, uh, Schultz and I had worked earlier in OMB when I was over there. Schultz came in as director. I met with him on his very first day in office. I had to do, organize a briefing of the whole federal government for him because he was going out to San Clemente to brief President Nixon. And as we were sitting in this uh, little room there in the, EOB, the old executive office building, and Schultz was late for the meeting. There's John Ehrlichman, Bob Haldeman were there griping. This guy's late, he's wasting our time. Well, Schultz waltzes in, sits down, he totally ignores him. <laughs> I gave this incredibly complex briefing. We had, Everything in the government I had in three tiers, you could pick you. And uh, everybody, uh, the, most people were kibitzing all the way through. Schultz didn't say a word. Uh, quiet. I went through about 30 minutes and said, okay, well, that's all I've got to say. And Schultz stood up and said, okay, I want you to take that third chart, move the second line over to the first chart, and he went through and mentally reorganized this briefing to his liking without taking a single note. So I went back to OMB. I got all, called all the program people together. And I said, guys, we got us a really good one this time. <laughs> <laughs> but he later came over as Secretary of State. He was a great influence on Ronald Reagan. Reagan was a... Was a arch-conservative when he came in. He was a hardliner. He did not like detente. He didn't like the Soviet Union. He called them all kind of names. He called them the evil empire. They should self-destruct. But so nothing happened serious with the Russians on his uh, first term. But in his second term, Reagan told Schultz, I want to do something. I've been elected. I don't have to worry about all these people will be you know, arguing with me anymore. I want to do something serious with the Russians. So Schultz went to Geneva, met with, started meeting with the foreign minister of Moscow, uh, from Moscow. They decided what we ought to do is uh, arms control. That was the big issue, intermediate range ballistic missiles. They were going crazy with them. So it seems crazy to think that the two superpowers were arch enemies 
would be able to sit down and talk about something that serious. Well, Schultz brought it back and talked to Reagan. He said, yes, I'll go to Geneva for a summit and I'll talk to Mr. Gorbachev. And he went and they, uh, they talked about arms control, trade, and human rights. If you can imagine the two superpowers of the world talking about those issues. They couldn't make any agreement that first summit because Reagan said, I won't, agree, I won't talk to you about arms control until you quit sniping at me about my strategic defense initiative. You've heard of SDI. This was the shield that would protect America from missiles coming in. Gorbachev felt that that added to the arms race mm. and he wanted Reagan to stop it. Reagan said no. So they broke up uh, and had no, no decision. But Schultz kept working with uh, Gorbachev's folks there and they were trying to carve out some areas of agreement. And we needed to find some areas where they could do a favor for each other. Well, during that time, Avital Sharansky, wife of the most famous <coughs> Soviet dissident, got a call from Schultz. He said, you can meet your husband on this bridge that covers, goes over to Potsdam. He's gonna be released by the Russians. This was the most imprisoned, famous dissident the world knew it that. Gorbachev released him, and he let Schultz announce it to his wife. Uh, Schultz told, uh, told me this story when I was out last to see him that they had a bunch of uh, evangelicals holed up in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. And he hadn't been able to get them out for five years. They couldn't leave. They couldn't go home. They had no future. So he told uh, the foreign minister, let's try to work on this one. And he said, if you'll release them, I'll work with you on it and I'll not say a word about it. I'll not try to take any credit. I'll just let them go. Those evangelicals released. Schultz felt that that increased his uh, acceptability to the Russians. They agreed then on the second summit. That one uh, would be in Washington. Now, that, the, the second summit was in uh, Iceland, Reykjavik. It was an informal thing, but they had made progress in all three areas. So they got there, and at that meeting, they, in effect, agreed on arms control. They agreed on human rights. They agreed on trade. And they got ready to leave, and then Gorbachev said, well, I guess this means that you'll now be willing to give up this SDI. And Reagan said, no. <laughs> and so that meeting broke up with no decision. So they started, then Schultz and the foreign minister, Shadvanarzi, kept working. They had a third summit. At that summit, uh, the issue of human rights was foremost. Going to a meeting at the CSCE prior to Commission on Security and Exchange in Europe. Uh, right before that meeting, uh, Gorbachev had sent message, if you will give on human rights, I'll do even more on arms control and mm. trade. So here's the deal, it's a good trade-off. 
So Schultz went to the CSE meeting and he gave a speech and he said, as long as there is no progress on human rights, there'll be no further discussion of trade or arms control. Now that's what I call putting the victims I mean, squarely in the center of foreign policy decision making. Well, they went to that meeting and that was the breakthrough meeting. They agreed on the world's greatest arms control a, a, a treaty up to that point. They agreed on trade and they agreed on the, all three areas, human rights uh, and trade. Over, that started the process. And then uh, there was a fourth summit that had additional cultural rights for Soviet citizens. But over a million trapped Soviet Jews escaped the Soviet Union because of that. Because of that leadership. Because of that leadership. And because Schultz and Reagan insisted that these refugees had to be dealt with before they would agree on other. And I, and I said back, this is the two superpowers. And they're, they're, they're discussing trade, human rights, and all of these important issues, and human rights ended up being key to all of it. So Reagan and Schultz, like Carter, are my heroes. I, I have two main takeaways from that story. One is I have trouble remembering what I had for dinner last night. <laughs> Just leave that there. Uh, the second is that presidential leadership and putting human rights first and victims first is and has been a bipartisan phenomenon Absolutely. throughout history. Absolutely. Um, Tell us, tell us about the Horn of Africa. So you mentioned that your friend Mr. Dewey is here today. Tell us about that experience and, and, and how that, we're doing a little tour of the world here uh, and, and we're, Jim is kind enough to take you along for the ride. Well, there was a major famine in Africa. Jim Kelly, I think, is here and he will certainly remember that. And we were addressing it in many ways. Um, and uh, we, we knew that there were maybe upwards of 150 million people under threat of starvation in Africa. And Gene, uh, I asked Gene Dewey, he was, he was my key guy working with the international organization. Gene, try to boost these guys up. They're slow, they're lethargic, nothing is happening. It's inactive. Well, Gene and I discussed this every day and he would come in my office and report. We were seeing no progress. And I got to one point and I said, Gene, maybe we ought to tell the UN that we're gonna withdraw from them and we're gonna find other partners. This problem is too serious. Hmm. People are dying out there and they're, they're going business as usual. So I said, but I, Gene and I sat there and I looked at him and I got to know Gene well and I can sort of sense his moods. But I could tell he wasn't agreeing with me. Is he agreeing with you now? I think he is now. Okay. He, he knows what I'm going to okay. say. <laughs> but he said, I can't read him like yeah. you can. So, I just... so, so he said, well, Jim, what if we force the UN to act? What if we call their hand? 
And why don't we tell them that if we don't see progress, we're going to go on our own. We're going to go separately. And I said, well, Gene, you know, the bureaucracy here in Washington and such would never get anything like that done. So we agreed that Gene would get on a plane, go up to New York, and would meet with our good friend Jim Grant, who heads up UNICEF, and uh, try to get him as a partner. Well, Grant had been trying to tell us that the problem is, uh, was mainly Ethiopia. And we were trying to say, no, it's the whole horn. Well, on the flight up, Gene saw a newspaper sitting in this seat, and it talked about deaths and strikes and whatnot in Amduran, which is not in Ethiopia. And he took it and flashed it, and Grant said, if you don't act on this, the Secretary General is going to be the next person in the headlines for failing out there. So Jim Grant and Gene went in to see the Secretary General, and they got him at a moment where all the staff were not around. And uh, they told him what was needed was a new, really, crisis organization that would, that would ride herd over all of these existing UN agencies and force their hand. That afternoon, we created something called the Office of Emergency Operations in Africa, OEOA. And we put Brad Morse, who heads up UNDP, in charge of it, Maurice Strong, a wonderful Canadian, as the deputy. And they were to be the catalyzers for crisis response. Well, I told Gene, uh, that may be all well and good, but you know, I've uh, authorized you to go outside normal bureaucratic lines. I had no authority to tell you to go to the UN or to see the UN. I was relying on Schultz's agreement with me that he gave me more leeway in humanitarian diplomacy than normal. This is one of those it's easier to ask for forgiveness That's than right. permission type so, situations. Yeah. But, uh, and the, the furor created was terrible. And I was on the hot seat. But the fact that it was created, it was already working, lives were being saved, I could withstand that. Absolutely. Schultz understood that I felt my hand was forced. But Gene Dewey and I did that in an afternoon. That was only needed for like two years. And then uh, we could end OEOA because the other UN agencies were then stepping up. They were seeing that the heat was on. They had to produce. But the Assistant Secretary for International Organization, you know, he handles all the UN and other agencies. Uh, during When I did it, he had been most critical. He rushed into my office threatening consequences. And uh, so uh, when the thing was over, a different Assistant Secretary for International Operations went to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and praised OEOA. Hmm. That had it not existed, these lives would never have been spared. And I think that, again, I was able to do that because I knew Schultz and Reagan supported our back. Yeah. Schultz had told me when I took the job that I expect you to be bold whenever you can. And don't stop because of bureaucratic problems. So I was banking on his support, and it happened. And he and Reagan were tickled pink that 
OELA had actually worked. <laughs> <laughs> they were probably a little annoyed at the beginning, yeah. that, uh, but you know, hindsight, 2020, et cetera. Um, no, I think that's a really amazing story, uh, as, as have all of these been. That was around what year? 85? 84. 84. 84, okay. Um, so fast forward a few years from there and tell us about um, the first President Bush in, yeah. in the Persian Gulf. Well, George H.W. Bush, uh, as you know, was going to invade uh, Kuwait. Uh, they had, they had in, Iraq had invaded Kuwait. We were going to drive them out. Uh, he assembled this force to do that. Uh, and we all knew there were weeks after, you know, we knew things were going. So the UN established a sort of a task force, try to get people out of Iraq and Kuwait as much as possible before the bomb started. Well, IOM was one of the first organizations into Kuwait and Iraq, into Kuwait. We didn't go into Iraq then. Uh, and we helped uh, set up a transport mechanism so that we were able, as people left Iraq or Kuwait, they could get into Jordan or other countries and we'd fly them home. We did probably half a million people. But there were, we, the, the Secretary General's special representative then was a person by the name of Sadruddin Aga Khan who had been one of the earlier secretary, uh, deputy, uh, high commissioners for refugees. And I was a good friend with, and he one day told me I could call him Sadri, and I said, oh my goodness, I can call him Sadri. <laughs> but uh, he was asking one of the UN agencies to go into Iraq to negotiate with the Saddam administration to see if we could get out. We knew about 25,000 that were just household workers maids and chauffeurs and whatnot that had not been able to get out and that their masters were trying to hold them back so in case the attack started they could be shields. So no, none of the UN agencies could get in because they had had already resolutions uh, opposing Saddam. So Sadri asked me, he said, well Jim do you think IOM could go? Hmm. And we were at that point not part of the UN and I said, I don't think they can criticize us for, our, for UN membership now. I had a, a group of uh, staff members from that region. I, I knew first the uh, foreign minister from Thompson, Geneva. So I was able to talk to him and say, this is what we really need to do. And he agreed. But you got to negotiate with the interior and the other ministries. So I sent a delegation into Baghdad. Um, they negotiated. We got agreement that we could get them out on flights that would be arranged. We would have to use Iraqi airlines and pay a fortune and go through all the hoops that would be required, but we could move them out. So we started, and, and we had to then go to the Secretary General, uh, to the UN Security Council, because there were sanctions about flying anything in and out of Iraq. Mm -hmm. So Sadri and I had to go to New York and we had to explain what we were doing uh, and why we were doing it. None of this was public. None of this was public. 
so the Security Council Sanctions Committee, they agreed we could do it, but I had to then really document each plane out, what was there, how the plane looked, how the plane looked when it came back. Uh, but I, um, I knew when the attack was likely to start. I didn't know precisely, but I had a fairly good idea. And um, so we started, I, George Bush later told, we got maybe 25,000 people out of there about two days before the attack started. We pulled all of our folks out. But George Bush, I later met in George H.W. Bush in Geneva, and he said, you know, I, uh, that was the most remarkable performance of any of the organizations. I was trying to hold off until we could see how many of these people could get we out. We could get out. They were only housemaids, they were chauffeurs, they were low-level people, but he said they're human souls, and I'm so happy we were able to do that. This was George H.W. George Bush. H. W. Bush. I, I, that was sort of warms your heart. Mm. Again, another example of presidential leadership, I think. Jim, you've, uh, it's a testament to you that you have filled this room on a Friday afternoon that is, dare I say, gorgeous. Um, and so I, I have a zillion and two questions for you, but I'm gonna shortly turn it over to, to your friends and, and former colleagues uh, and family who are here. Um, I just wanted, as, as uh, folks, our, our staff folks are going to be going around with microphones. Um, tell us, I, I want you to just sum it up for us and tell us what you want us to learn. And, and I just want to read a short part of your book. You, you have a chapter called Summing Up the Refugee Decade. And there was a sentence that really stuck with me. It said, the United States and its allies were ready to respond to these global challenges with a vigor and determination that almost no one foresaw, and to stimulate intervention and reform in humanitarian practices. What can we, looking forward a little bit, we've, we've really um, enjoyed the past in, in the first part of this conversation, so look forward, what do we need to do? How do we need to be thinking about the challenges today that are unfortunately even bigger than they were back then? Well, it was easier then because we had two presidents who were human rights advocates and because Gene and I and others had worked on the apparatus, we had a, an efficient, well-oiled machine to help. Today, we haven't got any of that. Uh, the governments you know, when I came back from Gen uh, Geneva and I started thinking about writing this book and I started, I picked, I said, I want to see how the model that we created could play out today. So I decided to pick one country and I picked Syria. And I'm going to follow Syria and see what works, what doesn't work, what's the situation. It was a travesty. Continues to be. And continues to be. Uh, can you imagine a little country of 22, you know, a historic country, an iconic country. Uh, 22 million people in Syria. 
500,000 people have been killed. A million have been wounded. Half the country is in asylum or out. The, uh, icons, treasures have been destroyed. Most of the schools have been destroyed. The churches have been destroyed. Uh, it's, it's a pitiable case. I look back at that and I said, well, if Gene Dewey and I had been there, what would we have done? We would have called the agencies in and say, here's the marching orders. We're going to put victims at the center of this foreign policy. I, it hasn't been. And I think they've been delayed for many reasons. For negotiations on a nuclear treaty, for work on trying to end, end the war out there, a misguided humanitarian strategy, uh, agencies that really don't work well together anymore. So what I, I would hope that, and I said later in the book, I had a little section in there and I hope you'll read it, I said my aim, my aim for this book is that like in the refugee decade, we would have people that would insist on a strategic life-saving framework that covers the beginning of a crisis to the end and all the steps in between and all of the actors that are needed and this is how we're gonna go about it. That's not happening. That's what I'm looking for is some way to spark a debate at the global level that we've got to change. And we've got ourselves, I think. I think we've been hardened a little bit ourselves. We've got to say these are souls. These are people in danger. They're reaching out to somebody. And we've got to help. I've been most distressed uh, recently that you've seen a, a lot of people trying to dehumanize certain people by their ethnicity, uh, trying to cheapen them. Uh, and I think they've been doing that to refugees. I think they've been doing it to migrants. I think they've been doing it to Muslims. They've been doing it to Christians and to Jews. We've got to have people like us who stand up and say, no, we won't allow such, uh, such treatment. Uh, we've got to have leaders. None of this will happen. None of the, what we did would have happened without Reagan and Carter. We've got to have leaders who will call us to account and say there's a better day out there, but you've got to get your act together if you're going to be able to play in it. Uh, I am, I'm really distressed that U.S. leadership in the humanitarian field has degenerated. I don't know if you would agree with that, Gene. U.S. leadership has got to be reclaimed. In my view, I look at almost any function that I've seen governments involved in and the world involved in, U.S. leadership has been critical. 
Without it, things just don't happen. That doesn't mean we've got to be out in front on everything. But people have got to be able to depend on us. And they don't now. That's got to change. Uh, the State Department, which when we were there, I think most of the world saw that this little RP group was a catalyst for the global international humanitarian system. We related to all of the other governments. We related to the international organizations. We related to the NGOs who resettled refugees. But we were the sort of the spark plug. We were the, we were the leaders. Well, that bureau is being destroyed. I think, maybe destroyed is too strong a word. I don't know. Eviscerated. Eviscerated. Wait, so which one's stronger? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's refugee budget. Uh, if you look in the, the president's proposals for 2020 and you compare them to 2019, 2019's about three and a half billion. 2020 is 352 million, is it? The rest of it has been cut and moved, uh, will be moved if the proposal succeeds to another agency. Uh, I've got very strong views about that. I think it's a serious mistake. And many of you who are familiar with the way I worked in the Refugee Bureau, you know that in using foreign policy, I use leverage. When I would go out to deal with the Thai, and they, and they wanted us to move more and more refugees out of Thailand and bring them to the U.S. I wanted help on anti-piracy. I wanted help on location of camps away from dangerous borders. I wanted to be able to reach in and pull out a particular distressed person if we needed for compassionate treatment. So I would, I would meet every year, sometimes once, sometimes twice, Take Thailand, for example, with the Thai foreign, uh, the Thai official in charge of the refugee program there. And he would tell me how many he wanted me to take out. And I would say, yeah, but before we do that, let's talk about piracy. Let's talk about other things that are of interest to me. I used that leverage because all of these programs were under me to reach some pretty good decisions, I think. That leverage won't be possible if we break these historic programs apart. Uh, and I think we will lose a great deal. I know this is an issue that's whirling around even as we speak. But I am, if I go back to what I want to see happening, uh, I want to see new leadership. I want to see the State Department strengthened. I want to see AID strengthened. I want to see all of us able to work with a renewed sense of vision that we are working uh, in a, not a sacred cause, but something that's pretty close to it. Hmm. That there are many, many people in the world who are desperate, they need help, they're depending on people like the United States government, the Europeans, others. And I think we're failing now. 
Jim, uh, I want to bring in the audience to this conversation. Um, so if you have a question, I'd like to say a few words. I, I don't know if you had a couple people that you wanted to call on. I mean, we've, we've obviously talked about Gene uh, a lot today. And so maybe I give the first opportunity yeah. for, oh, there it is. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it took a little while there, Gene, uh, to, to come to it. But yeah, thanks. Thanks I've, for being I've here. I've got to have equal time. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, as you can imagine, it was a thrilling story having lived it with, with Jim and having had leadership uh, like that constellation in the United States that Jim described. Uh, it hasn't been there since, and it's, it's a vacuum today. Now, the, um, we, we talk about the greatest humanitarian crisis today, and, and the administration would say it's the southern border, that, uh, that that's a huge crisis. But I would say that one of the greatest humanitarian crises today is a man-made, uh, self-inflicted crisis, and that is the shift of leadership out of the State Department to AID. And uh, I, th I think those of, you who, uh, those of you who will read the book and those of you who care will be interested in the question, what, what can I do to prevent this happening, to preserve the leadership which was legendary and iconic, as Jim has described it, in the State Department? Uh, Jim, what is your answer to that question? What can we do? What can they do? Well, I think uh, we can make our views known on the severity of the proposal that's pending. I think our congressmen need to know that not all of us agree with this proposal, that it has drastic implications. I'm not saying this, you know, before I, in my early days of my career, I used to work over in USAID and I enjoyed that. I think it's a great organization. I think both state and aid are great organizations. I just disagree with this move because I think it is fundamentally wrong. I think human rights and refugees are flip sides of the same coin. They require diplomacy. The State Department is the diplomatic arm of this government. Uh, and as I say, we've got to be able to, to leverage what we do in, uh, you couldn't leverage resettlement anymore like I did then because resettlement has been cut so far that it barely exists anymore. Would you believe that the resettlement level proposed for this coming year is 30,000? This is the lowest ever since we created this resettlement program in 1980 as I described earlier. Uh, I, I think people have got to be concerned that the, the human rights refugee arm of this government are being downplayed. And they've got to let people know that they don't agree with it. But certainly I plan to do that. Uh, let's take a couple more. Let's bunch them. Um, so I want to go. I, the the woman in the back had her hand up early and often, and then we'll so that I'm not only left dominant. Uh, we'll come over and the gentleman in the yellow shirt. Hello, <laughs> Jim. It's Paula Lynch. I was in that little band of people in 1980. I joined the Foreign Service then, and I've been doing humanitarian assistance ever since, and I'm back in PRM now. And I just want to thank you because a lot of the management practices that you started in PR, in RP, 
are still going on in PRM. We still have our policy and review program, <laughs> policy and program <laughs> review committee, PPRC, and we get outstanding ratings every time uh, Inspector General inspects anything, and more and more of them do more and more of our programs now. But we get really high ratings, and it's because of the, the pattern that you set. And so I just wanted to thank you very much for that. Thank you, Paula. I appreciate that. Well, if your only legacy is that the review committee still lives on, you know, that's one, <laughs> heck, of a, one heck of a legacy. Um, yes, uh, gentleman in the yellow, and then we'll go back this way to the gentleman in black. And if you wouldn't mind standing and identifying uh, yourself as well. Uh, my name is Samar Chatterjee, Safe Foundation. Sir, you, I can understand your concern about refugees um, uh, and human rights and so on. However, um, uh, wh one of the reasons we have had uh, so many refugees over the years, uh, that is related to U.S. policy. Whenever there is a country in some turmoil, U.S. is always active in trying to destabilize that government, especially if it happens not in favor of the United States. And right now it's going on in Venezuela. And I'm sure if that government is toppled, the amount of refugees that will be generated would be very similar to Syria, since the Russians are involved and the Chinese are involved. And so given that, would you want some changes in U.S. policy that would reduce the number of such events that are happening? Because U.S. uses liberty and democracy slogan to destabilize governments, and this has happened since the Second World War all the way, you know, in various places. So would that be part of your agenda? Yeah. So the, the, there's a question about... Uh, U.S. policy and how we've had a destabilizing effect um, on places continues today in Venezuela. Gentlemen here, and then we'll just bunch a couple of these together, if you don't mind, Jim. And again, identify yourself. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, my name is Emmanuel Berriesa. I'm a sophomore at Dartmouth College studying international politics. Um, part of what we see in really successful coalitions is getting other countries on board with all of our international agreements. In the case of human rights, in your experiences, how has it, I guess, how easy or how difficult has it been trying to form these agreements with countries such as China who have like domestic human rights issues themselves, but so trying to get them on board and getting their support and resources as well? I think that's a really excellent question. Maybe we take one more from uh, the gentleman here and then I'll, I'll hold you accountable for answering all three. Uh, yes, sir, please stand and, and identify yourself if you don't mind. Good evening. Thank you very much for the program you carry because I'm the witness of refugee. I came from Poland escaping the communist, and I appreciate what the program have done. But I left as a political refugee. And today I have some problem because we have a political or war refugee which I buy that. But if you have a refugee which they claim and they economic refugees, this is a big if. Mm -hmm. How you can interpret and how you can address this to our politicians that there is a difference between political refugees as well as war refugees. Mm -hmm. And by the way, many of the refugees come even to this country, even refugees of those new immigrants so-called, they, they don't even want to be adopted to the country. In West Europe, they want to be their own culture. They, I never carry my flag, Polish flag, when I come to US. 
and carry my Polish flag. First thing, I kiss the land of USA, and I never get any help from US government. I didn't care about that. I came for opportunity, and that's what I see. New immigrants, new refugees, they come over here because of the aid, free ride. And this is what I don't get, I cannot get it. How the program can sustain of real refugees. Thank you. Jim, three easy questions, softballs. <laughs> and a really nice, uh, thanks Paula for being here. It's good to see you again. Uh, first question, the PR Program Policy Review Committee. I set that up because I didn't have any staff. I had <laughs> some way to get all my directors on board before things came up to me. That it's existed and stayed this long is remarkable, I would say. Yeah. Uh, well, Paula's a fan, obviously, so you know it's not going anywhere in time soon. Yeah. So, uh, like, uh, you know, U.S. policy on political, economic, etc. The U.S. has got a, you know, I don't know if it's always implemented correctly. I can only speak to my time. But there's a very clear definition that we have subscribed to when we agreed to the UN protocol that brought us in uh, the UNHCR as, as a member. We've got the people have to be, have been discriminated because of race, religion, national origin, uh, or unwilling or who cannot depend on their home country to protect them and they've left the boundaries of their home country. That's a refugee. Uh, they've fled for very legitimate reasons. Increasingly, people are coming for a whole variety of other reasons. Uh, the re they, many of them know about the refugee definition. It's narrow, but they try to grab onto it. Uh, Many countries have tried to expand their refugee definition. You go to Africa or Latin America, they've added uh, general violence as, as another contributing factor that makes one into a refugee. But the fact that many people are coming in different guises should not necessarily be mixed up as refugees. People are, some people come as refugees, some come as immigrants, some come as uh, without any real authority to come. They just come. And we look at the implications of what happens once they're here, and somehow that all gets translated back into refugee. We clearly have got to strengthen up our immigration system. We've got to try to eliminate illegal immigration and take steps to do that. But we've got to continue to be generous, I think. We have a political asylum system. Uh, it's in the Refugee Act of 1980. We've subscribed to it. Uh, I think it's, it's been abused uh, quite substantially. But it's there and it needs to be improved upon. But we've got to start really, I think, distinguishing about who comes and in what programs. And we've got to resist the temptation to think that every bad action that some foreigner takes in this country can be labeled as a refugee. I have found uh, in interviewing many people to try to talk about the 
maybe horrendous acts that some people uh, attribute to foreigners coming into their country, Europeans as well as Americans. They don't really distinguish between immigrants, between refugees, between political asylum uh, applicants. Uh, and I think it's, there's a great deal of confusion. I, I wanted in my book to try to clarify a bit who's what, why they come, who comes that doesn't qualify for refugees, let's not confuse them. And then to tarnish the refugee regime which is needed by other arguments. Uh, I, I don't know how to answer that question they, about the having governments together uh, on human rights or other matters. I think that we do. We've got a human rights council. All governments have a representative uh, there. Uh, but to, I found in my experience that when the leadership, and I'll take either Carter, Bush, or H.W. Bush, or Reagan, when they clearly state a policy and a program they want to endorse, uh, like look what George H.W. Bush did to pull together a coalition of the willing before he went into Iraq. It was enormous. But, I think it depends on the credibility of the people making the request. Uh, do we respect them? Will we honor them? Will we try to help them? And I think that can, uh, today I think it's more difficult. Do we um, honor and trust them and do we trust that they will honor the agreements that absolutely. are made? Absolutely, and do they, that's absolutely correct. Uh, I think that's, that's really powerful. I think we have time for probably one, one more uh, question. Yes, uh, the woman right here in the middle. Uh, and maybe we'll see how the question goes and maybe we can add a second one uh, after that. That's a lot of pressure. Um, thank you so much uh, for the, this uh, talk today. Uh, my name is Michaela Ross. I'm with, a reporter with Bloomberg Government, um, but, and I report on Homeland Security. But in my previous life, uh, several years ago, I was um, a Peace Corps volunteer in Nicaragua. And one of the things I hear anecdotally now with the people that I still keep in contact with is cambio de clima. There's a climate change going on. There's been years of drought. Uh, they're sending their families up to the U.S. And I'm just interested, you know, do you see climate change being something that's going to spur continued waves of migration? Is there anything in your experience that you could compare it to? And how do you feel that the U.S. might need to... Um, the question's about climate change and how do you think about climate change as being one of the the big challenges of our time. I think that's an easy question to answer, so maybe we'll take one other one. I'm just kidding, that's <laughs> incredibly complicated, but I saw another hand up there. Yeah, uh, same, same question. It's obviously a popular one, so we'll take one question there, and then uh, I don't want to stand in between people and drinks too long. Thank you. Claire Higgins from the Caldor Center for International Refugee Law in Sydney. Thank you, Jim. I wanted, wondered if you could speak uh, very briefly to the orderly departure program that was implemented in Vietnam and the potential for such a program to be implemented in future. That's an excellent question. So in about 90 seconds, we got to solve climate change and then talk about the well, that program. I think Gene and I saw beginning in 1984 in the famine and drought when drought occurs and the weather goes bad, people leave. Yeah. 
That was the greatest spur to migration in that region, and it's been true forever. And I think climate change is one of the big issues that we got to grapple with, is there is no doubt that as the climate deteriorates, uh, people are not gonna be able to survive in certain areas. And I think we have to expect there will be an effort to get out, just like all of us have done in our lives. When we need to, we move on to better circumstances. I want to turn to orderly departure. It's a very good question. Back in the early days in Vietnam, I didn't like the fact that everybody leaving Vietnam had to get on a rickety boat, get out into the sea, risk their life, and try to get to Thailand, Malaysia, or Indonesia. I don't know how many of them didn't make it, but if you talk to the refugees there, they said about half of them didn't make it. Mm. So I, we had an idea in the early days. Why do we insist that people depart in such a dangerous way? What if we could work with the Vietnamese government to create a mechanism to allow people to depart from Saigon or from wherever and, and go and have countries like the US and France and England and other reception countries agree to take so the notion of orderly departure grew up. We sent a representative, turned out to be Dale DeHans, who many of you know, former uh, aide to Senator Kennedy, later a deputy UN High Commissioner for refugees. He went to, to uh, Vietnam, 1979, and undertook negotiations with them. We had three or four separate meetings there, and Dale got an agreement. They're gonna to agree to orderly departure. They're gonna stop forcing people out. They're gonna give us lists of people that can come through orderly means. So we all thought that was a great breakthrough. Uh, the only problem is the Vietnamese were not good with their word. They wanted to rid the country of people we would call uh, ethnic Chinese. This was the Vietnamese merchant class. And they wanted to get rid of them because they wanted to take their property. Uh, we wanted to get at people who had been politically persecuted or other known cases. But uh, ODP did not fare well for many years. We, in fact, at one point, I dispatched another of my deputy assistant secretaries, Bob Funseth, undertake direct negotiations with the Vietnamese in Geneva. And the Americans didn't really talk to the Vietnamese at that level then. But we had their discussions, we resolved a number of technical things, and ODP started. I wanted it to, at one point, at least equal clandestine, de uh, or clandestine departure. I wanted them to overtake it, then I wanted it to replace it. Well, it was very slow. The Vietnamese never gave us their list. We always had our list, but they didn't come through with them. But they gradually started creeping up by, I think it was about 1984, ODP and clandestine departures were about level. And from thereafter, ODP orderly began to, uh, began to increase. When the comprehensive plan of of uh, action for Indo-Chinese refugees was ended in 1997. Uh, That's 22 years after the program started, the fall of Saigon. 
I've got a table in my book. If you look at table seven, it shows at, over that period how many people came and how many people went. It shows that over that almost 30 year period, we helped uh, about 1.3 million refugees resettled in the U.S. through the regular channels, and we helped over 600,000 people leave through ODP. Now, eventually, I made ODP a program where you could apply to leave both either as a refugee or an immigrant. And my objective was to move more and more of that refugee emergency movement into uh, immigration. And that's happening. Hmm. That started back in 1979 with Dale DeHaan, but, OD, but that, your question, I think, has to do with some of the current crises. Is this a concept that has applicability today? I think it does. If we can get the Vietnamese, which are our enemy, we just fought a war with them. We didn't even talk with them, but we can get them to agree to let their own people leave safely. I think we can do that in a number of other countries. Rather than having people bunch up at our border, we could create a safe and orderly means for people to leave their own country and get it. But you gotta go through a processing system. You gotta identify yourself. We gotta know who you are. Do you qualify? You can't just throw yourselves on the mercy of the US system by coming to our border. Yeah. Orderly departure has a lot of promise. I think it could be used on the southwest border. If we need to, I think it could be used in Venezuela, if it ever comes to that. But we've got to have some strategic thinkers who are thinking along those lines. We, we've now got this problem at the border. Nobody's raised this, but it's a big issue. People are clopping to our southwest border. Now, if I were... And starting off on a crisis and designing a regime for the southwest border, the last thing I would do was be to put in place a system that draws people to that border. I would try to find sort of like a Southeast Asia regime that we had that sets up safe, orderly processing camps throughout the region that helps people know they're valued, that we have programs for you, we can keep you there and we'll process you. If you need to come to the US, we'll document you and we'll help you move there. But it's not necessary for you to go and crowd yourself around that border. But if you need to go back home, we'll help you do that. And now, unfortunately, our government just stopped aid to some of the Central American countries that were helping. They're trying. Yeah. They're trying. And, uh, but orderly departure is a wonderful program. It had great impact in Southeast Asia, and I have the sense that it could do the same in other crises around the world. Jim, you wanted to end this with uh, a part of, of your book. Tell us, tell us about that and, and take us home. Okay. <laughs> also, I really like this bookmark. <laughs> Maybe coming home. Well, I wanted to. I wanted to say this is this is a serious topic, and we need help. So I found my wife helped me find this. It's a Franciscan benediction. I'm going to read it to you. May God bless you with discomfort, 
at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you can live deeply within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of others so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for people who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war, so that you may extend your hand to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world with his help doing what others claim cannot be done to bring justice and kindness to all children and the poor. Amen. Jim, uh, I have one last question for you. This has been this has been really an honor, and I think everybody's really uh, enjoyed this. Probably not as much as I have. Um, I have one last question for you. Will you sign my book? <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another curated conversation from CSIS. Tune in next week for more, and remember, you can explore all of our events online at CSIS.org.